Welcome to the Change Alchemist podcast and a very happy new year. My name is Shobhana Vishwanathan. In the Change Alchemist podcast, I have real conversations with leaders and thought leaders about the evolving future of work. If the last 2 years has taught us anything, it is that change is the only constant. And in this podcast, you'll find inspiration, ideas and tools to help you navigate the future of work. And what better time than January to set new intentions and goals? To help you with this, I have a very unusual guest today. His name is Andrew Taggart. He is a practical philosopher and works with entrepreneurs and founders to challenge their basic beliefs and to adopt a first principles framework to solve their problems. And today he discusses the importance of a meditation practice in the future of work. He gives us a few practical examples to get you started in 2022. Welcome to the Change Alchemist, Andrew. It's such a pleasure to have you. Lovely to be here. Andrew, let's dive right in. You are a practical philosopher. I've never met another practical philosopher. You have a PhD in philosophy and um your website says you're an artist who teaches individuals to inquire into things that matter most mm-hmm. let's start there i know in your interview with k you had mentioned being a practical philosopher isn't an oxymoron as it sounds on the surface let's start there it's lovely to be here as i said i think we need to begin with some misconceptions about what philosophy is So I think that people in Silicon Valley and tech and in business might be inclined apart from some stoical philosophy they may have read about to think that philosophy is rather esoteric is rather theoretical perhaps is unpragmatic perhaps is useless perhaps just raises large questions without answering those questions perhaps is unactionable and so on. So this is the picture that we have of an out of touch highly theoretical quite academic picture. I won't in the beginning <laughs> tell a long history about how we got to that misconception. Instead I'll simply say that it's it's just quite misleading in that in the east and in the west we have plenty of pictures or conceptions of philosophy which are anchored in fundamental questions that any self-reflective person would be inclined at some point or another to ask namely but not only who am i why am i here what is vaguely put all of this about what's the nature of reality how is it good for a life to go what are the aims of life so this melange of what are called metaphysical questions about the nature of reality together with ethical questions about how to live so let's come to a practical philosopher to practical philosophy as i was telling kehi it's not an oxymoron in fact it's a little bit of a modern neologism in that it was an attempt to shift from that theoretical misconception i was pointing us to the actual nature of ancient philosophy and the actual ancient nature of ancient philosophy was concerned with the question of how is it best for me and for us to live this is what the late bernard williams called the socratic question how shall i live so we begin there when i philosophize the people we begin with how is it best to live and then that question tends to open up other questions because when you ask the question about how is it best for me to live i need to be one needs to consider um concentric circles of sorts the people that one works with the family that one is engaged with the community that one is a part of the neighborhood that where one lives and the nation state to which one may or may not belong and so on and so forth so these questions tend to have a kind of expansive quality they tend to be nested within one another the the technical questions we ask about what is to be done tend to require a broader understanding of our lives 
So I can say a little bit more and then that'll probably be enough for my introductory comments. So I would define philosophy in the following manner so as to make it appropriate for your listeners and viewers. Philosophy, I would say, is the activity involved in asking and seeking to answer the most basic questions of existence, those I just pointed to earlier, as well as others I haven't yet pointed to. And most especially, this is where tech people, I think, should perk up the ears, the actual living out of the best answers we've come to so far. So philosophy has always been about living wisely. And the wise life is the actual answer to the questions at hand. So if someone is said to be wise, that person is actually living compassionately, sympathetically, joyously, and so on. That person is actually living out one's knowledge of a good life and of the nature of reality. I like that. I think philosophy to me has always been esoteric, as you said. It's not something I've incorporated into my daily life. Mm -hmm. I felt like it's nice to read books on philosophy. I haven't really understood how to apply some of those concepts mm -hmm. uh, to my life. Obviously, un unexamined life is not worth living. But mm -hmm. how do you start examining your life? Where do you start? Oh, sure. So I think you are helpfully bringing out the, the assumptions that many of us have about, once again, the irrelevant nature of books on philosophy. We should first bear in mind that philosophy, while it appears in books, is not really the essence. The essence of philosophy is living in dialogue. This is where we, this is one of the great lessons that we find from Socrates. And we can also find it in certain Eastern philosophers as, as we look to them as well. So where does it begin? It begins in what I would call a kind of existential crack. Elsewhere, I've called it an existential opening. I'm unpack that a little bit. <clears throat> there are times in all of our lives when we go from feeling pretty certain about the direction we're headed in, about the goals we have for life, about, again, what all this is about. And then there can be certain events that occur in our lives. It might be just one very minor event. I can give examples if that's helpful at some point, or it could be a quite a major event, such as a death of a loved one. Mm -hmm. Now, this is usually the point at which psychology and modernity enters in, that is, we start to think about grieving or um, matters related to mourning. All of that is perfectly fine, legitimate. However, there can be larger questions that begin to burst open in those very, uh, in those very events. And so what can happen is that we find that the questions we start to ask are reflective or self-reflective questions in a way they weren't before. So we might have asked before, what is my goal in life? Something like that. Not a bad question to ask. But the new question could be, who am I in the context of all these actions being undertaken? That the, there comes to be a shift from the objective loosely understood to the subjective. So you might find, I know that you have a background, I believe in, in Advaita Vedanta. So the question, who am I, is not uh, simply an innocent question. It is a reflective question. It's a pointing around question. It's a turning around question. So many of us will begin to find that after some kind of existential opening or crack of some kind, we can't help but begin to ask these questions. Whereas before they seemed as if they were merely academic. Afterward, they seem as if they can't but be. So we begin with, in short, lived experience. And certain lived experiences are formative and so formative that things start to shake around in us. They get jostled a bit or more than a bit. We feel quite turned around. The Greek word here is aporia, which means a kind of pathlessness, deep confusion. And in that deep confusion, then the searching begins very organically, very naturally, so that I've discovered that many people who ever 
and get in touch with me, get in touch with me after they've gone through all other sorts of things. So the, the joke would be that philosophy and spirituality are the end of the road. Mm -hmm. right? They're the sorts of things you would come to quite naturally because you start to find that the questions you're asking are not being answered in other domains. So to, just to be absolutely clear, so even though it might seem to many people as if it's abstract and unclear, why would, we be, why would you would even begin to ask philosophical questions? To some people, I can only assure you, it is obvious. And that's what happened to me. It became obvious that I had to ask the sorts of things before that I could have taken for granted. And then the examined life starts to take on a life of its own. And we can talk about that. So if I were to summarize, philosophy does not exist just in books. It is expressed through dialogue. It is ex expressed through questions that you can ask yourself or ask a coach, for example, someone like yourself. Mm -hmm. Where is the boundary between philosophy, psychology, and spirituality, or are they interconnected? Okay. I'm not a psychologist, but I'll begin to tell you what I think psychology is concerned with. Then I'll tell you what I think philosophy is concerned with and spirituality. I would say at the outset that there are points of overlap, and that much should be clear, because a lot of questions we ask tend to cross specific modern boundaries. I'm a holistic person in a very strict sense, meaning every question we ask it deeply enough traverses across modern institutions and modern segments in the ways that are clear. We can't really, if I ask a question, for example, about whether I wouldn't ask this, I, I love my wife, but do I love my wife? That raises the question about my relationship with her. It raises a question about the nature of love. Do I know what love is? It raises a question about whether love is something that is insular to the household or whether it's, as certain religions would say, more generalizable. So it has a spillover. We should just be clear that there are always going to be spillovers. Do, do you love her in the way she wants to be loved? That's the other part too, certainly. And so to come back to your question, let's start with psychology. My sense is that psychology is concerned with the path of healing. So there are certain issues one could speak about, but if one were, I'm, I'm fairly philosophical about this, we ask what is the basic aim of psychology? Basic telos, as Aristotle would say, that for the sake of which this field is, I would say it's a certain kind of healing. Freud, for example, notoriously called it the psychoanalysis, that which is concerned with the mm -hmm. cure of certain neuroses or psychoses. More recently, people are interested in talking about traumas. Mm -hmm. Not among, not the only thing that people talk about, but traumas are those that seem to be seeking out forms of healing. I would say one inquiry I'm very interested in is, it's, and this would take us a little farther afield, but I think psychology is very good. It can be very good at what in the East are called some scars, which are ego self tendencies or ego tendencies, or sometimes I call them false identities. So an example might be, I come to realize that a fear that I have of driving could be traced back to a belief and feeling that I am worthless. Okay, so it would take a little while to trace that back, but one can inquire to a point of realizing it's not a logical inquiry. It's a kind of meandering inquiry, but it leads back to I'm worthless. That's a very good inquiry. If one can actually start to let go of I'm worthless, one begins to experience a certain kind of healing. And that goes in other, in other areas as well. So much for psychology. I think philosophy is interested in asking more fundamental questions. That is, it's asking about what is the nature of healing? provides the scaffolding for other forms of inquiry. Or so let's suppose that were the case that one actually were healed from trauma. Why is one living now, <laughs> right? Now that one is not simply experiencing the deep wounds, what's it all about? Now, philosophy though is mainly discursive. I think it actually issues forth in silence, but I think that goes a little bit beyond the scope of our conversation. So. It's a logos-driven, it's a discourse-driven activity. It's largely drenched in mainly rational discourse uh, through the dialogical format that Socrates is so marvelous at practicing. Spirituality, I think, uh, moves us beyond the discursive 
though I do think that like philosophy is interested in ultimate matters of concern, as Paul Tillich put it, not the provisional matters of how to uh, take care of your ordinary affairs in life. No, the ultimate matters. However, I think spirituality moves us into the non-discursive. We get into silence. We get into, even if it's a mantra, the mantra itself is a kind of vibratory pattern that might be pointing to something that's beyond vibration, whatever that might be. So I think that philosophy and spirituality are um, interested in these higher levels. And I think psychology by my lights is more infrastructure, so to speak. Sure. And you're a Zen practitioner. You just came back from a session retreat. Mm -hmm. Tell mm -hmm. us about your sort of philosophy around how you incorporate some of those concepts into your own life and how people can get started. Okay. The short answer would be to say that I'm a Rinzai Zen Buddhist practitioner. The slightly longer answer would be to say that I'm a non-dualist, which would bring us into a perennial philosophical point of view. I'll just briefly allude to that. I think we're, in, I think we're entering a moment in history when we can start to notice lines of convergence between independent mystical traditions. All of these traditions are concerned with the non-conceptual, non-discursive nature of ultimate reality. If that's true, then we have different paths, so to speak, that can help us get there, which is not really there, but a here. Well, Zen is one such, and it's, a, it's called a direct path. So I can first say just a little bit about Zen. Technically, it could be said that you can't really say much about Zen. And if you've ever read any Zen or heard about Zen, you have a lot of these paradoxes. But mm -hmm. the, I, can, I think I can, nonetheless, from a philosophical point of view, I think we can say what Zen is. The first Chan patriarch named Bodhidharma once said that Chan is a direct pointing outside tradition see original nature become a Buddha. It's mm -hmm. one translation of a few lines from his writings. When we meditate in Zen, we're not meditating to get somewhere, to do something, to become somebody. Rather, we're meditating to allow all of the physical and mental senses to slowly quiet down to the point at which there can be a kind of clarity that is a, uh, a non-conceptual clarity, an open, spacious clarity, a direct pointing to what we truly are. <clears throat> so the meditation is really different from what I think a lot of technologists seem to take it to be. A lot of meditation, a lot of technologists and people in Silicon Valley think that meditation is really what you do. It's it's something that's goal-driven. You're trying to therefore get somewhere. You're trying to improve or enhance something like mental clarity or physical relaxation. These are, in a, from a Zen point of view, side effects. They're lovely side effects or fruits of the practice. The body does become softer. The mind does become, the fi finite mind does become clear, more focused. However, the main inquiry in these traditions such as Zen is, let's put it this way, it's into the nature of consciousness, but that is understood from a first person point of view. This is not a, a scientific third person investigation of the nature of consciousness. No, it is a direct inquiry that no one else can do for me. I have to find it myself. And that's very consistent with what the Buddha taught. I think that's probably enough about Zen Buddhism. If the question now is, how does one get started? Do I understand it correctly? Okay. Is that one path to uh, oh. consciousness? Okay. Oh, certainly. So yeah, there are yeah, different yeah. types of meditation and what mm -hmm. you uh, practice mm -hmm. Rinzai Zen mm -hmm. meditation. Yeah. But meditation is misunderstood as something that can increase productivity, that can get you into peak performance mode mm -hmm. and maybe relax you and be a you know calmer person mm -hmm. but what i'm hearing you say is all that is true but it's much more than that 
And why should then someone meditate at all? So there are different answers given to that question. To begin with, these teachings, now I'm going to speak, when I say what follows during a conversation, if I say this teaching or these teachings, it's a synthesis of what I take to be the essence of it is. These teachings usually are so elegant in that they will talk to different people at different points in the path in different ways. This is sometimes in Buddhism called upaya, or using skillful means. So if someone has not meditated very much before, but starts to have a little bit of a spark or enough of an inclination, then this person could be called, as Bhikkhu Buddhadasa calls them, serious beginners. Mm-hmm. So for the serious beginner, it may be enough to appeal to what are otherwise epiphenomena mm-hmm. or fruits of the practice, the ones I was just mentioning. So mm-hmm. someone might say, my mind is not calm. I realize that it's a monkey mind. I'm starting to understand that I can't seem to stay balanced. That's a common one. I find a number of people saying I can't seem to find peace and so on. So we have these indicators of what might be sufficient for someone to get started. Others will say things like my body is always tense or often tense. Some would say I feel as though I'm um, closing in on burnout. These are all fine reasons, and they're really sufficient hooks for people to get started. I would also add that the reason someone might come to meditation, if those are the starting points, is that one will start to realize that, uh, hopefully no offense to other guests you've had, but the other ones don't work. Yes. That, That tends to be the problem. And I'm using work there in a very pragmatic sense so as to appeal to your listeners. If you try out a certain number of things from self-help literature, you'll ordinarily find that they don't have efficacy. Whereas meditation, if it's actually stuck with, is remarkably, undeniably effective. (laughs) Done the right way. Because I've done meditation Mm -hmm. and I, in fact, came to your class with Kay. And I do think... It, it really depends on who your teacher is. I, I do feel like a lot of this is where you're taught, how you're taught, and how long you practice it too. Oh, those are clear. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I totally agree with you. All I'm doing is kind of dangling a carrot for serious beginners. So if the serious beginner has tried a number of other things and found that they're not efficacious, and if the serious beginner has something like the feeling I don't feel clear, I, I feel jumbled, I, I feel, these are all indicators of what the Buddha would call dukkha, these are low-grade forms of dis-ease, mm-hmm. then it's, there's a sufficient case, or it's a very sufficient and easy case being made for why you would start. So now the question I think you're asking for is, how do you start? Mm-hmm. That's a harder one, quite frankly. And so one, one problem we run into in Western modernity has to do with the fact that we're seeing a, a hyper-fragmentation or hyper-pluralism that's been exploding for some time. It's nicely discussed by the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, by the historian Brad Gregory. What I mean is that people are confronted with a very strange phenomenon, namely a kind of a la carte. I don't really know. There are so many things out there. I don't know how to begin. I don't have a teacher. The, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Song of the Three Jewels is not really, I don't know what that means and it's, it's not available. So I'm trying to bootstrap meditation. And now, mm-hmm. so that's that. Now we have a, a conundrum. So I would suggest, so I have a few ones that I've, if you want to use tech lingo that I've uh, iterated with for serious beginners. And I'll just, mention a couple of those so the criteria first one if we're thinking about some let's assume we're thinking about a seated practice not a walking practice not lying down not any other form let's just keep it there for now even though there are all sorts of ways in which people have meditated they've prayed they've contemplated they prostrated and so forth so i'm just going to assume that this is the thing right here okay Mm -hmm. we're we're going to be seated i can see you Mm -hmm. okay so I think one that's very nice is one that you, we did during Kay's class. I think a very simple prana would be good. So I have some criteria. Number one, um, it shouldn't involve too much in the way of things that Westerners would find very spooky, to use English. 
<laughs> or woolly if you know <laughs> if you know that so you can't begin with installing deities or with guru love or with bright lights uh, so all this i'm saying none of this has a kind of intuitive appeal it needs to be fairly rational sounding fairly analytic quite empirical so here's one i'll give you three very briefly that i think are, are really nice what so the one criterion no willingness another criterion should be able to be taught in about 30 seconds as a first go as a preliminary practice and third of all it should be too effortful some forms of breath work if you've done them are very effortful and let's just say holotropic breath work it's just not something you're ever going to do on your own in a daily sense so it needs to be a sweet spot not too effortful not too effortless effortlessness comes after years of meditating in a certain practice there's more to be said but those are enough in terms of specifications or criteria so here's one a pranayama it's just a count of three or four in the inhalation three or four or five depending on how relaxed one is and then a count of six or eight or ten on the exhalation and i'm really borrowing this from a commentary of patanjali's yoga sutras of patanjali so it's a very old text I've done that one many times. It's quite good. And it's consistent with what we know from science because your nervous system should quiet down owing to the fact that you have a longer exhalation than an inhalation. Can someone do that? That's one, two, three. One, two, three, four, five, six. Of course, it's it's not too often. And how long? So I'm, I'm in the camp that states that so that's a big question. So the first thing is I would, let's suppose you were to do that meditation. We'll come back to the other two in a moment. Other two meditation techniques that I think are very doable. I would do it first thing in the morning. Once you grab your phone, so I'm imagining someone who's involved in business or tech. Once someone grabs one's phone, it's pretty much over. Uh, and there's no way someone's getting back around to meditating. So it's first thing in the morning is what I tell people when people are asking me this question. Of course, you don't have to do it first thing. You could do it before bedtime and things of that sort. But really, what happens over the course of the day is that the finite mind arises and gets quite unsettled and imbalanced so that by the end of the day, there actually is a lot going on. It's much harder than it is after a decent night's sleep. So first thing in the morning, and then I actually start with, I suggest people start with five minutes. So this is you go to a Goenka retreat, who is someone who practices the form of Vipassana, you find at the end of a retreat that he tells people who are serious beginners, do it for one hour in the morning and one hour of the evening. Wow. Yeah. And this is a suggested, lot. that's a lot for beginners. So I suggest you begin with five minutes, you establish it, you make it seem as if, so, the, so there's a bit of a problem with the mind's doubt. The mind says, oh, I don't have time for that. That's too much. And this is getting in the way of my very productive schedule. And I have so much to do with and all that. So I think that what we need to do is make it, first make a compelling case. And the case is, who doesn't have five minutes? I speak with executives. They all have five minutes. <laughs> Everyone has five minutes. First thing in the morning, go to bed five minutes earlier, wake up five minutes earlier. Yeah. So if you can actually nail that down, so over a certain period of time, let's say over the course of a month, then you can move up to 10 minutes. By the, time, by the time you get to 20 minutes, you'll start to see that there are tangible benefits. You'll start to see that there are, your thought right now can appear to those who are beginning as if there are thought streams or as if the mind is like a set of fireworks going this way and that way. But over time, there come to be a rise of thought, silence, arising of thought, silence, stillness. These are sometimes called gaps or intervals. That's a big move because we can start to then become very curious about what those intervals or gaps are. There's a deeper investigation that is now possible into the nature of consciousness as a consequence of having cleared some of that brush. Um, what we'll also start to notice if, you care, if one carries it on long enough is that I would call them gross forms of suffering, begin to subside and do not return. So I'd have to parse that. But the sorts of habits that we've gotten used to, such as constantly remembering grievances, the feeling of guilt or remorse, start to subside. 
And over a long enough period of time, they don't keep coming back. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some scars that will come back. That's a kind of a later in the investigation. But there's a lot of what I used to call brush clearing that occurs early on. And as a result, there is much more clarity and peace. Uh, a third benefit, so if we're going with low-hanging fruit arguments here, a third benefit is just the fact that we don't say the sort of stupid thing we were accustomed to saying. <laughs> We tend to put our foot in our mouth as a result of a kind of impulsiveness, mm -hmm. impulsive action, impulsive speech. So this is very consistent with the Eightfold Noble Path in Buddhism, where right speech is in there in the beginning. But we can actually start to experience that. So I myself might become less reactive, as it's said in meditation circles, and more responsive. The distinction is meant to bring out the difference between an impulsive, unconscious, sticking your foot in your mouth, mm -hmm and the quiet, intelligent responsiveness that can come forth in the form of compassion. I think also, and I, this is by the way, ad hoc reasoning, there are tons of benefits, but another certainly one that comes to mind right now, uh, and this is gonna sound a little bit squishy perhaps at first blush, is uh, compassion. But what I mean is that you can actually start to tune, it doesn't take too much more to tune into background of someone with whom you're speaking and you start to get a sense that that person actually is despite his or her manner of speaking despite the cheerfulness that seems to be exuded actually quite ill at ease mm. a little bit nervous mm. agitated in some ways so you start to and that is what i mean when one starts to keep in the very least to people's unsatisfactorinesses and then one can start to speak from that place you become more empathetic to someone. Certainly, yeah. And so long as your self-centeredness goes down, which is also what happens in meditation, your capacity for entering into the lives of others goes up. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've learned through philosophizing over the last 10 years with other people is that I'm not really, there is no self-centeredness present. I'm sitting in what um, Zen would call it, be called a samadhi state mm -hmm. and a no-thought state. Someone's talking and then it's just a question that arises that is other directed there is nothing about i don't like what this person said uh, why isn't this person taking me consideration what do i need from this person what do i want from this person all of those are just not present there is simply the openness to the needs and concerns of others mm -hmm. now that might sound rather self-sacrificial to some who are yeah. listening right now i was going to ask you if you sacrifice your ego how do you make people listen to you if you're a CEO, for example. You realize that you don't need to worry about the, the sorts of things that you were hung up on, such as reputational damage or ego-based forms of ambition drop off. As a consequence, it's not hard for people to listen to you because they know you're coming from a deeper place. They don't know how to articulate that necessarily. Call it a wiser place if you want to. Moreover, you're more able to allow people to get things done because you're not quite so, you're not so officious. This is in Taoism, we talk about Wu Wei, and one version of Wu Wei is non-intervention. So a good company is one in which one doesn't need to intervene all the time. One can appropriately, but then it's done skillfully. Yeah. As the self-centeredness goes down, the kind of wisdom, clarity, natural intelligence comes online. And it's much more spontaneous as we find in these Eastern traditions, right? That the, the spontaneous intelligence is, has a way of saying the right thing and it has a kind of eloquence about it, mm. a pointedness. So we talked about three breaths in and six out or three, four. That's right, three, six or four, eight. eight. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's okay. What else can people do to get started? Yes, that's one technique. Mm -hmm. Um, another one is Zen counting. So that's for, the first one is nice because some people really like the breath. The breath can be much deeper than we think. It has a kind of luxurious or sweet quality. Another one that I found among many others that I've tried over the years is Zen counting. This appeals to people who are slightly more analytical. I worry that some people will try to gamify it, but I'll try to, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to uh, nip that in the bud in a moment. So it's very simple. To start out with, you would just count one on the inhalation, 
two on the exhalation, three inhale, four exhale, oh, okay. all the way up to 10. You're just counting to 10, and then you come back to one. Whenever you lose count, as a result of getting lost in some kind of thought stream, you would just return to one. Um, if that goes well, then you move to the next steps over a course of time. It feels as if you can continue the count up to 10, down to one, up to 10, and so forth. There becomes a more continuous quality of counting. Then you can make it a little bit harder by breathing in, counting out one, breathing in, counting out two. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Up to 10. Lose count, go back to one. Then that gets very easy. Then you can, this is a one pointed concentration meditation. You're learning to become, the, the, the count is nothing, but the one way to not gamify it is to realize that it's just a metronome of sorts. You know, something like that. The last version that I'm borrowing this from Philip Kaplow's Three Pillars of Zen, famous Zen text, involves counting one on the inhale, mm -hmm. nothing on the exhale. Mm -hmm. That's actually the hardest. It's a little counterintuitive. So what's happening is that there's basically an entering into a deeper state of consciousness, which Zen refers to. This is not uh, the language that's used in Advaita Vedanta, mm -hmm. or in certain forms of Hinduism. It's called samadhi. And samadhi is a calm, relaxed, basically no thought state in which this metronome is occurring in the foreground experience. There's a third, there's a third one. Mm -hmm. The third one brings us into uh, what sometimes is called anapana mm -hmm. by Goenka or shamatha in Tibetan mm -hmm. Buddhism. One version involves having your eyes open or closed, and then you will place and rest your attention on a point in the nostrils, one of the nostrils. So usually I don't check it out beforehand. And I can find that my left nostril, for example, is more open right now. Mm -hmm. So I would find a, a particularly sensate spot in that nostril. And then I place and rest my attention on it. Rest because this is a non-wavering, another one-pointed meditation. So then all you'll do is maintain your attention I should, on that spot throughout the rest of the meditation. That's it. Oh, so you just point your attention to one spot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's right. You yep. just focus. That's it. Yeah. I'm a little hesitant to use the word focus because it's not like scrunching your eyebrows. That's why <laughs> I think I use the metaphor. That's why I use the verb choice was place and then rest your attention. Early on, it can seem as if a lot of effort is involved, but later on, the placing and resting stays put. So someone might ask the question, let's be clear, with regard to these three forms. So I think all three forms satisfy the conditions I've put forth. I'm not saying sure. there are others that don't, but these have been, I think I've tried and tried them out and I think beginners can actually do them. I've just explained them and all in just a few seconds in each case. Um, one can start them right now. So I would ask the question, but what are these in response to? And mm. I would quote the Buddha here, or paraphrase him out of the Dhammapada. And he basically says our mind untutored, untrained is like a wild stallion. So in that case, we're, what we actually experience throughout the course of many days is what in one translation is called dispersive minds, dispersive people today will speak of being distracted. So there's a dispersive wayward, uncollected dissipation of our energy. So out of great compassion, these traditions have devised what you may wish to call meditation techniques or practices that are meant to be solutions to that problem. If this is what it's like, I'm in a miasma of sorts throughout the course of the day. What is it like to try to do this with my fingers to be like that, right? This, we're having this conversation, mind is not wandering. You and I having this conversation, mind is not wandering, here it is. Uh, a lot of times this is, this is not, these are not, direct pointings. These are preparatory meditations that are trying, as B. Allen Wallace, a contemporary Tibetan Buddhist teacher and scholar, would call it, makes their point is to make the mind serviceable or workable. Those are his words, not mine. They allow us to go further. They allow us then to utilize some of these faculties mm -hmm. we're learning, right? Now the mind is able to actually investigate more things. 
as needed. And it's able to, quite frankly, do the things that needs to be done throughout the course of the day without the noise, without the, yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. So people will say that I can find the signal through the noise, if that's a helpful analogy. So I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is a lot of people will reach out to you when they've gone through a trauma, such as a death mm -hmm. or a life-changing event or a career event. Okay. Now, one of the concepts we have in Hinduism is the concept of ashramas, right? I think as people progress through different aspects of life, right. they get more enlightened. Now, right. going back to our Silicon Valley world, Okay. Um, is there an age you get spiritual or is this mm -hmm. sort of somewhat uh, independent of age? Is there a certain prerequisite to becoming spiritual? Do, can you be a, a family person with two kids and a, a busy life and yet be spiritual? Or do you have to be enlightened in some way to be, become spiritual? I'm just asking because that's mm -hmm. the way I was taught, that oh, you go through life stages. Yeah. Yeah, so I would say that I think you're referring, I don't know if your listeners and viewers know, to this sort of four-part, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the first part, as I understand, has to do with study. You're a youth and you study. Mm -hmm. Second part has to do with being a householder. Mm -hmm. The third part, fourth parts have to do with leaving the household. The fourth part was being alone in the forest and, and, and meditating. <laughs> That's what comes to me when I think of, hey, you've yeah. got to be spiritual. I'm thinking mm -hmm. of this person that's done with their familial uh, obligations and now they're off self-actualizing, right? Mm -hmm. I think that there's something allegorically correct about that, but not literally correct. Allegorically speaking, if we return to my existential crack or opening uh, <laughs> proposition, something certainly has to move or shift within one in a pretty significant way to allow one to become open to what before seemed a little bit out there, a bit zany, a little silly or exotic, more than just going to Burning Man or doing an ayahuasca. That can just be cool. This is right. what, yeah. So that, that, I don't mean that one is involved in what, called spiritual materialism, which is very rampant today. That refers to, among other things, having interesting experiences. Mm -hmm. Going mm -hmm. on ayahuasca and going to Burning Man can become a collection of experiences. So spiritual materialism refers to having a certain spiritual CV or a certain mm -hmm. spiritual resume. That's not really spiritual in the sense in which I'm using that term. One is still playing a game of a certain kind yes. looks pretty similar to a career game, mm -hmm. a career aspiration game. Rather, spirituality is just going to begin whenever it's the case that one realizes that out of horror, out of shock, out of mild but continuous pianissimo dis-ease, confusion, out of, quite frankly, a mystical experience that one can't quite assimilate, mm -hmm to a disenchanted, modern, secular, scientifically understood world, but, and can't seem to shake off. In all these ways, and I've had a number of those things myself, in all these ways, one is pushed and pulled to come into this domain of inquiry. Okay. So there are push that can come through basically recognizing that one's not at peace. And then there's a pull that comes from maybe certain experiences that are really joyous and one can't quite attribute them any longer to the particular activity itself. Nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary about the activity itself. And yet there was this blessedness or bliss or joy or something that seemed completely home-like. What was that? Right. And I think many of us, quite frankly, fob those off. But if we don't fob them off, then they can become clues that open us up. So that's a kind of push and pull. We're pushed because there are these experiences that really hurt and we can't seem to get to the bottom of them. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about traumas. I'm talking about something very simple, but nagging. Yes. So uh, the example I've used in my 
conversations with Kehi uh, are like pebbles in the shoe. Mm -hmm. Or to notice that there are these little, little or big pebbles in your shoe, and you can't seem to ignore them anymore. They have a, they start to dial up their salience. Wow, these pebbles are there. I don't care if I take the shoe off, they're still somehow attached to the bottom of the foot. Put the shoe back on, I buy a different shoe, they're still there. I try to swap them out, I try to move my feet in a certain direction, I do everything I can in terms of as it were life hacking or repositioning, and darn it, they're still there. Uh, yeah, that's a good analogy because a lot of us can't get rid of that feeling, but we don't know mm -hmm. what it is. And, mm -hmm. and setting up a spiritual practice might help. Oh, certainly. I think it, quite frankly, it's almost the only thing that will help, <laughs> in my <laughs> opinion. <laughs> right. What I, what I want to underscore here, unless that, in case that wasn't clear, what I was saying uh, up to now is that this opening to what we're here calling spirituality can occur at any time of one's life. That was the allegorical point. You could yes. be studying, as it were, in your studying stage of life. Some kids are uh, terrified by the concept of time. Some people have a profound fear of death, fear of death at a very young age. Mm. And it's not just neurosis. Um, or some people, while having, and, and I should also say that some people, while being a householder, have these amazing openings and they're not really sure what to do with them or the vague feelings that you were you were alluding to just moments before mm -hmm. so there i wouldn't call it a kind of stadial view first stage second stage third stage fourth stage i would say that the th what we're talking about the third one the spirituality can erupt okay. really at any moment I'll give you a couple of examples i'll give you one example it's sufficient my eldest sister was diagnosed with uh, late stage cancer indeterminate cancer at the end of 2013 in December. She lived 12 more weeks. So it's very rapid. The kind, yeah. So you can psychologize that. There's nothing wrong with psychologizing. That's grieving in a family. But what I tend to point out when I use this story to illustrate my point is that there was more that opened up in me at that point. I said, what's all this about? Is that the end of, is that the end of my sister? Mm. And I want to say that loosely, right? I don't, when I was asking those questions, the whole point of asking these new questions is they tend to have a kind of vague penumbral quality. You don't really, they're hazy at first. They sharpen, by the way, in time if you keep with them. Is this all there is? Was usually the way I put it myself, right? Is this secular? Right. Is, am I just a material being that's going to perish after so many years, right? Is this entity I call Andrew? necessarily and sufficiently composed of and is consciousness just an epiphenomenon is it just is this is this finite consciousness just arising out of matter and we can talk more about some of these bigger questions but in any case they started to really become clear these were no longer academic did she go anywhere was there anyone to go anywhere was there any individuated entity was she reincarnated was she reincarnated is there an afterlife whatever these are no longer trivial or outdated or you know, fussy questions it's like no i really want to know because i'm now gripped is that why you pursued your phd so that was in 2014 good question no i pursued my phd because i was in, on the academic track no that was i was so to put it in an academic language that was i was i found things interesting if you've heard that Expression. It's a very common one. I'm interested in such and such. I found interesting this. I had certain, there's a certain field and things of that sort. But as the PhD, as the dissertation progressed, the questions actually did start to blossom open. I realized that this PhD had more to do with, the PhD was about the nature of the good life in the modern world. What's the modern world and what is the good life and can we live it here? So it started to make an, an interesting transition toward the more existential. And then I finished my PhD and realized I wasn't going to become an academic. And then I was pretty <laughs> clueless about how to live. So the questions started to become vaguely turned around in the way that I was suggesting early on in the conversation. So that was in 2009 and then my sister, that was, so that kind of set me off on the philosophical path, the kind I was describing at the very beginning of our conversation today. The death of my sister, you might say, roughly speaking, turn me on to spirituality. Then I got very interested in Taoism and uh, Zen, 
and Christian mysticism, all these things begin to give us a different kind of roadmap mm. for understanding what, again, all this might really be about. And when did you find that bridge to the business world with the CEOs and the founders right. you coach? Oh, yes. As with everything, that's by happenstance. <laughs> I think we should be honest. <laughs> I don't know how people talk, tell these stories in ways that seem to suggest that they take any credit for them whatsoever. <laughs> but, it's, but it's interesting, yes. Mm -hmm. Of course, but I, I, I mean that in earnest, though, by happenstance. So I can tell you, it's, I've just been uh, philosophizing with people around the world uh, of all sorts and kinds, young and old, and all those who have had very deep questions. And I've been doing that since around 2012. Mm -hmm. Maybe certain doesn't let 11. And then roughly around 2015, through a series of events, a news reporter named Michael Corrin got in touch with me. He was then, as now, a reporter at Quartz. And mm -hmm. Quartz was pretty hot in those days. So he wrote an article about practical philosophy, and, and I was one of the once commonly cited we had two lovely interviews he's now a friend and that article really just blew up <clears throat> when it was posted it was posted in april late april of 2017 and then i started writing some articles for courts after that these kind of the confluence events seem to have led a number of people in the valley to get in touch with me but i frankly uh, didn't haven't done anything differently in terms of my practice and approaches it, it was historical contingency for example i started philosophizing a couple of years as it happened after the after mm -hmm. the economic collapse after the real estate collapse mm -hmm. and to put a theory out there i would simply say that what's interesting about uh, philosophy is that it almost always arises not just out of existential openings but also out of historical collapses mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there are moments in time where people are thinking oh i lost my house what am i going to do i have big questions now or mm -hmm. Or I lost my job and things are going belly up. I have, now I have big questions. So this happens to be the case that Quartz, when it was in its heyday, I think now after it was sold to the Japanese company, isn't quite as um, sexy and cool as it was then. So that's just how it happened. So I, what I mean to say is that it happened by happenstance. I don't think phil philosophy is, happens by happenstance, but I think it's, I just want to make sure that this is clear. It's out of deep humility, reverence, and understanding that I wouldn't say that I made any of this happen. Right? It's right place, right time. The Greeks call this kairos. They meant it happens at the opportune time that things come <laughs> together. Yeah, no, I was reading uh, an old article in the Atlantic magazine, and uh, they talked about how a lot of philosophy majors have really made it. You take someone like Stuart Butterfield in Slack, you take Peter Thiel, PayPal, Carly Fiorina, HP, George Soros, I didn't realize was a philosophy major. So there's something to be said about asking the right questions, learning to problem solve creatively in a way that's profound and deep. And maybe that grounding in philosophy gives you that ability to translate your work in different forms at different times in your life. It's interesting how philosophy has found its way in the world. And I gave you a few examples, but I'm sure there are a lot of people pursuing philosophy today. What would you say to students pursuing philosophy? How should they proceed uh, with their lives, their careers? What should they hope to do? Yeah, I think... There are other people like Reid Hoffman, who's commonly mentioned. Paul Graham, though he doesn't have a background, I think, strictly in philosophy, he tends to write more searching and contemplative pieces. Mm -hmm. So we can think of many people like that. So I used to get this question, asked this question a number of times over the years, or have rather. And <clears throat> what I think is interesting is that I suspect, by the way, uh, speculation to follow, that even though coding is presently in high demand, we might see some further form of deep AI or some such be able to do a fair amount of the coding. Mm -hmm. The technical, the sort of technical aspects of work could very well, so to speak, be outsourced or be automated. 
And so a number of people I speak with are actually doing the automation themselves, which is putting out of work those before we're doing more of the grunt work. Let's say network engineers are doing that kind of thing at the present time, right when we speak. So certainly the old yarn was that liberal arts majors were out of touch and they could only hope for barely making a living in some way or another, unless they pivoted to marketing or mm -hmm. to getting an MBA or something like that. But I would suspect, and we're starting to see a number of articles since 2017, you can look for more of them. There is a kind of meme about what I'm, what I'm saying here. There's a book by, oh, I can't remember the name now. It's called The Fuzzies and the Techies uh, that just came out in 2017. It was quite popular for a time. And it made the argument that the fuzzies, namely liberal arts people, are actually going to be in quite high demand in this new economy. So why might we think that could be the case? If you're someone who's an analytical thinker, someone capable of, as Elon Musk would say, seemingly citing Aristotle, being able to move from first principles, you're someone who's developed the capacity to look in terms of thought experiments or future scenarios. If you're someone who's able to ask what if questions, then you're actually quite well positioned to be involved in higher forms of thinking. And it's not surprising that we are now pivoted. We are now deeply in the digital age, which has been doing quite well for those who are called knowledge workers. So mm -hmm. the apex of knowledge workers, I would argue, are those who are not philosopher kings, but they're philosophically inclined, whether they say it as much or not. Right? Certain engineering people are certainly very philosophically inclined. Or if one is going to do a startup, one has to ask questions about what is not presently existing, but what could exist, what is in the, what is in the space of the adjacent possible. As, this, as the lingo goes. Mm -hmm. So I would say that um, generally speaking, the capacity to cultivate the intellect, now we're not talking about meditation or spirituality, capacity to cultivate the intellect in a way that enables one to ask bigger questions that go beyond merely technical questions that are more upstream and to be able to come to more novel answers should be, now this is speculation, but should be highly sought after. I don't see why it wouldn't be. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I was talking to a, a person called uh, Margaret Heffernan. She wrote a book called Uncharted, and she mentioned the same thing. She said that you can't have a monoculture and have innovation thrive. So you need different kinds of people. You need diversity. You can't just have engineers running every company. Sure. We do need liberal arts majors. We need philosophy majors. So that's another argument for having different okay. style of thinking in leaders, not just analytical left brain thinking, perhaps. I agree with that. So that's nice. It's a pluralist argument. We would need more artistically inclined people, let's say, or more visually oriented and then more left brain people, the kind you described. I think that the another argument to make which hasn't really come fully out, but Karen Swisher, mm -hmm. who's been a critic of the Valley, uh, tried making it, is that we need more people who are involved in the ethical questions, the consideration of ethical questions, particularly after the Cambridge Analytical scandal mm -hmm. and after election problems, after a number of things we've seen at Facebook. So it seems to me that there, there may not be a chief ethics officer of the kind that she proposed, but, I don't see why we shouldn't be asking ethical questions. It's not just the matter of, so the problem with the world of startups is we have feasibility questions. Is it feasible? But is it valuable in a broader sense? Right? Mm -hmm. Or is it ethically dubious? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think one Rolling Stone article once stated that a lot of these startups have to do with replacing your mother, <laughs> right? So these are trivial startups, if you will. But all those questions about triviality, about about what goes beyond feasibility, about larger questions of value that are not simply forms of economic value, start to put us in the realm of the ethical and perhaps also the political. And those are questions that should be asked and answered by people, not necessarily who are trained in philosophy, but have a certain kind of philosophical presupposition. In fact, I would argue this way if I were to be a little bit more uh, cheeky, and that would be that I think most people should have, most people involved places like Google or Facebook, I'm speaking grandly here, but they should actually have a bit more of a philosophical inclination in virtue of the fact that these are the most powerful companies or some of the most powerful companies in the world and how they wield that power has in the past been a question of wisdom, right? 
this is why someone like Seneca for a short while was involved in advisory capacity. Right? <laughs> I know everyone refers to him, right? I know. Yes, I know. He gets the, he's common reference. But, yeah. So I always ask my guests a couple of questions and I'm going to ask you the same. Okay. What is your superpower, Andrew? My superpower uh, is the art of the question, something we haven't touched upon today. I've probably devoted almost 12 years of my life, 11 years of my life now to learning how to ask a question in a way that's penetrating, clear, and surprising. And perhaps you can talk to us about your favorite books that have influenced you yeah. and inspired you. And I would love a few books on the topic we talked about, meditation and spirituality, but also some books on philosophy people can get started on. Okay. I worry that I'm a little bit academic now. <laughs> okay. 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 I'll give, there's a book that someone just came upon the other day that might be helpful for people. It's called Mindfulness in Plain English. I've only begun to skim the surface. Let's look at the first pages. It's one of those books that's become highly recommended. There's also a book by Kathleen McDonald called How to Meditate. These are, this has been a book that's been around for a while. I myself got into meditation, not through books, but as you might imagine, through practice. Mm -hmm. So I also mentioned Philip Kaplow's book, Three Pillars of Zen. I, that I found it to be a very inspiring book for those who are somewhat in a Zen key. Zen is, I think, very tangible for people in the Valley because it doesn't talk too much about metaphysics or doctrine. It talks about sitting on your butt and meditating. <laughs> it's very practical in that regard. I can see if I can think after this interview of any other books sure. or meditation. If so, you can include them in the show notes. <clears throat> As for philosophy, there are a number of wonderful books. I worry they might be a little bit too erudite, but mm -hmm. one of my favorite books is by Alistair McIntyre called After Virtue. Mm -hmm. In this book, he tries to chart how virtue ethics got sidelined as we turn to the modern world. It's a very beautiful book. It's very elegantly written. It is a little bit dense, but he doesn't have virtually any footnotes in it. And it's a short book, too. A few magisterial books are mm -hmm. by Charles Taylor. He wrote a book called Sources of the Self. It's another long, glorious history of how we got to how we are today. And another book is even longer called A Secular Age, <laughs> okay. which is published in 2007. But it tries to tell us what the character, the secular character of our age is in the West. As for philosophy as a way of life, what I've really cut my teeth on, uh, Pierre Adot, who died in 2010, was a French philosopher and a classicist. The one to start with there is an interview with him. And the interviews are beautiful. They're really well conducted. A lot of books that consist of interviews, they're, they're hit or miss. But this is a very elegantly put together book. And it's called The Present Alone is Your Happiness. For those who have, maybe you're coming from India or from Southeast Asia in any case, they might actually find this book to be a very interesting bridge from the interest in stoical philosophy that we find among some technologists back to the East, so to say. Even though he's talking about Western philosophy, it's very interesting to see how his talk about Western philosophy, the history of Western philosophy comes in this very meditative contemplative form. Other books by him are marvelous. Another book is called What is Ancient Philosophy? Mm -hmm. And it's a history that moves us from his beautiful conception of ancient philosophy, which says that these different schools were concerned with the nature of wisdom, concerned with leading wise lives. They were very practical. It takes us through the medieval period, which is the, the, the less than salutary force in the novel, by which he thinks that sort of it lost its way. And by the time we get to modernity, in modern universities, he thinks we find a lost, deracinated, overly academic, schoolmasterly, out of touch form of philosophizing. I could mention more, uh, <laughs> but, but I think that's probably enough to start I, with. This is great. This is a great list. I would love also for you to talk about uh, your website and where people can find you and uh, what kind of work you do with uh, technologists and founders of companies? Oh, sure. My personal website is andrewjtaggart.com. I like to say that if you search Andrew Taggart, 
you will have a hard time finding me unless you add the word philosopher because Drew Taggart is since I'm older than he is, but he has become much more popular and he's the lead singer <laughs> of Chain Smokers. Chain Smokers, yeah. Just add philosophy or something after that and you might find me. So there are a few different things I, I do with people. One is to, to have philosophical conversations and then we inquire into the things that matter most. So we don't always know what those are at the beginning, but those come to arise through the question answer format. The other thing I do, this is not surprising given their conversation today, is that I also meditate with people and teach people to meditate. And I also do guided meditations that try to bring us to a greater understanding of the nature of consciousness. The last thing I'm interested in could be considered an adjunct to philosophy and meditation. And that is I'm quite interested in a psychological inquiry into more or less the things we're holding on to, those that I was calling some scars. Mm -hmm blockages, resistances, energy blocks, programming, different names for this and people use today, different forms of social programming or social it's, it's quite interesting how those resistances keep popping up in very different contexts. Mm -hmm. For example, to make brief, if I think I am powerless, it's amazing how it shows up when one is trying to use a hammer, when one is talking to one's colleagues, when one is in a loving relationship, somehow all these situations are different and yet they can be traced back to this particular false identity. So I think philosophy brings us into these deep conceptual investigations of ultimate matters. Meditation allows us to move into the non-cognitive, but still very much available to us. And the other one is cleaning up, as Ken Wilber called it. We clean up our mess. And mm -hmm. so doing it sort of funnels back into the other two, the philosophizing, the meditating. What a wonderful uh, way to start the new year, uh, talking to you about spirituality, philosophy, and all things I think I don't normally talk about. So it was great to um, have this wonderful conversation. I hope to stay in touch. I will put the names of the books in the show notes. And I wish you a wonderful year. Thank you, Andrew. Well, thank you very much. I wish you and your family the very best this new year. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Change Alchemist. If you enjoyed this show, subscribe on iTunes, Google, Anchor, or any podcast platform of your choice. Tell a friend and be sure to tune in next week for another exciting episode.